Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. With what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. And yet, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants, and puts out large branches, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Good morning. Good morning. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 4 if you're not there already. We'll be in verses 21 through 34 this morning, which is the text you just heard spoken. For a few months now, we've been walking through the Gospel of Mark. Um, And as of last week, Mark made a distinct shift in his Gospel narrative. So in chapters 1 through 3, Mark focuses on the purpose and the works of Jesus. But here in chapter 4, Mark turns his attention to the teachings of Jesus. Jesus was, after all, a first century rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, which meant he was a teacher. And Jesus' primary mode of teaching was parabolic, meaning he taught in parables. He taught in this manner uh, so much so that in the last two verses of this morning's text, which I didn't read because Jesus didn't say them, Mark adds this in verses 33 and 34. He says, With many such parables he spoke the word to them, and that he did not speak to them without a parable. And that's a bit of hyperbole from Mark there. It doesn't mean Jesus only spoke in parables, but it is trying to communicate the point that Jesus really liked to communicate in this way. And as Kevin taught us last week, parables are simply real-life stories that convey and carry a truth. The reason I began this sermon by reading this text over you, rather than you, even if you cheated and read along with me, as we typically do, which is fine, but the reason I did that is because that's how Jesus' audience originally would have heard this teaching and these parables some 2,000 years ago. They would have heard a story that communicated a truth. And it is in their story that parables hold their power. Parables are effective precisely because they do more than just give us a list of facts and tell us right from wrong. Rather, they invite us into a story. They give us a narrative to live into and paint a picture of reality and the way things actually are in the kingdom of God. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright says this on the power of parables. He says, stories, which is what parables are, invite us to come into a different world, to share a worldview, better yet, a God view. This is what the parables are all about. Parables offer, as all genuine Christian storytelling does, a worldview which, as someone comes into it and finds how compelling it is, quietly shatters the worldview they were already in. Stories determine how people see themselves and how they see the world. Stories determine how people experience God, the world, themselves, and others. Great revolutionary movements have told stories about the past, present, and future. 
They have invited people to see themselves in that light, and people's lives have been changed. If that happens at a merely human level, how much more when it is God Himself speaking through His Word? In the parables, Jesus is inviting His listeners to repent of our sin-stained mental maps and to believe in the Gospel. He's inviting us to come into alignment with the Kingdom of God, to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. And as we do, once again, we can live for what is good, beautiful, and true, and what will satisfy us for all eternity, namely God Himself. This is what makes the parable so compelling, and it's why Jesus uses them as the vehicle for much of His teachings. So Mark 4 opens with Jesus teaching the parable of the sower, which we heard last week. And this week, we have three more parables. They're shorter than the parable of the sower, but Jesus gives us three more parables in our text this morning. We have the parable of the lamp, the parable of the growing seed, and the parable of the mustard seed. And I'd just like to kind of interject and pause and say last week, Kevin, and I'm not just saying this because I'm up here or he's giving me money to say this, but I thought he did a really good job teaching on the parable of the sower. But notice he taught on one parable to which Jesus exegeted for him. Kevin has asked me to teach on three parables to which Jesus has offered me no help. So thank you, Kevin. Appreciate the tall task, but I'm happy, <laughs> happy, happy to step up to the plate. But in all seriousness, these parables are meant to make a point, and their respective points um, are the sermon title for this morning's message. And I'd just like to say your worship guide is wrong. That's not Kevin's fault. That is my fault. Uh, Siri incorrectly autocorrected worship to wisdom. So it should be personal worship, public proclamation, and patient growth. I actually went back and checked my text messages when I saw the bulletin, and I was like, my bad. So personal worship, public proclamation, and patient growth. It's a sermon title. It's our three points, and we'll take a look at them one at a time. So look with me at Mark chapter 4. We'll start again in verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. So Jesus opens this parable by comparing the kingdom of God to a lamp. And in doing so, Jesus is pointing out both the nature and the purpose of the kingdom of God. So the nature, Jesus says, of the kingdom of God is to take what was once in darkness and to bring it into light. That's the point of verse 22 when Jesus says, Nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. We actually see this case in point in the parable of the sower. Right? It's only after the seeds of the gospel are sown that the nature of the soil is revealed. That is the nature of the kingdom of God. It takes what was in darkness and brings it into light. Now for its purpose. Jesus says the purpose of the kingdom is to be proclaimed. The purpose of the kingdom is to be proclaimed. That's the point of verse 21. Jesus asked the rhetorical question, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed? And of course, we all know, as his original audience would have known, the answer is no. No one brings a lamp into a room to put it under a basket or to hide it. It is brought into a room to give light to the room. Right, And just as a lamp is not lit to be hidden, neither has the kingdom of God come simply to be ignored or extinguished. Rather, it should be welcomed and worshipped. The point Jesus is making here is that the coming of the kingdom is what brings ultimate reality to light. 
In it, God reveals what He is doing in the world at large and what He aims to do in the tiny confines of the human heart. In Jesus, it is as if God has entered our sin-stained world and effectively turned on the lights. And the key task of the spiritual journey is to come alive to this reality and to live in response to it. So how do we do that? How do we come alive to the kingdom and God's presence on earth? And that's really the the rest of the sermon, if you will. So in the last few verses of this parable, Jesus gives us one response. And then in the parable of the growing seed, we'll have the second response. And the parable of the mustard seed is a bit of an encouragement for those inside the kingdom on kind of what to expect from the kingdom itself. So Jesus says our first response should be personal worship. Personal worship. Jesus intends for those with good soil in their souls to respond to the coming of the kingdom through personal worship. And the most fundamental way we do that is by hearing what Jesus says. Hearing or listening is the origin of all worship. It's why Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. It's also why Jesus twice in this chapter already Once in verse 9 that we looked at last week, and again in verse 23 here, amongst other places in the Gospels, pleads with the crowd, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus does not want anyone to miss the coming of the kingdom because to miss the coming of the kingdom is to be identified with those in verse 12 that Jesus says, quoting from the prophet Isaiah, would indeed see but not perceive. They would hear but they would not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Those who are outside of the kingdom are both blind to the lamp that is the kingdom of God, and they are deaf to the voice of Jesus in their ears. But to simply hear the word is not enough. You can't just kind of go in one ear and out the other, and all the parents in the room said, Amen, right? Jesus asks us and pleads with us and tells us our response should be application, as we heard last week from the parable of the soils. Uh, In verse 24, Jesus says it a different way. He tells us to pay attention to what we hear. Not just to hear it, but to pay attention. And the term for pay attention there means to perceive, to contemplate, to behold or take heed. It is more than just kind of hearing something audibly. It's meditating on it. It's considering it. It's contemplating it. It is savoring it until it shapes us. It's basically the opposite of those in verse 12, but hear, but don't understand. So Jesus invites us to hear His words and to pay attention to them. And then verses 24 and 25 are two reasons Jesus gives us for why we should do that. And they're both kind of cultural idioms of the day. So Kevin pointed out that uh, parables are real-life stories. These are real-life examples of the day that Jesus is teaching on. But they're kind of lost on us now through 2,000 years and a lot of cultural differences. So we'll unpack them a bit. But the first reason Jesus tells us to pay attention is given in verse 24. He says, With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And the Greek this literally says, With the measure you measure, it will be measured to you. Sounds like a circular argument from Jesus, or at least a bit confusing, right? But Jesus is just teaching us a kingdom truth here. And the truth is this, that as God initiates us with the kingdom, which He has done in Christ's coming, that our response to Him will in turn determine His response to us. So for those that embrace the kingdom of God, who receive the seeds of the gospel and the good soil of their hearts, God will reveal himself more and more, which is why Jesus ends this little phrase by saying that still more will be added unto you. 
The late preacher R.C. Sproul is helpful here. He puts it this way. He says, The degree to which we have access to God's revelation depends on how we receive and act on our Savior's words. The measure we use, how open we are to God's word, will determine how much insight into it we are granted. Our Creator does not give more to people who have little if they do not truly receive the little they have been given. So think parable of the talents, if you're familiar with that. Jesus hands out, or somebody hands out, talents to three men. One is given five talents, one is given two, one is given but a single talent, just one. Right? The guy with five talents multiplies it, he gets ten, he's rewarded, well done, good and faithful servant. The guy with two talents multiplies his, gets four, well done, good and faithful servant. The man with one talent, given the least, thinks I only have one talent, what, what would happen if I lost it? So he buries it, wastes it, and is called a fool. That's Sproul's point. That's the point Jesus is making with this little quip here. But Sproul goes on to say this, The Lord is exceedingly generous, but He is no fool. He gives more only to those who truly want what they have already received. Christ will not continue to dispense His revelation to us unless we want Him to fill our measure with it. The second reason Jesus tells us to pay attention is given in verse 25. Jesus says this, For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Now, the key to understanding this little phrase is in uh, answering the question, what is it that the one has that he's rewarded that the other doesn't have that he is condemned? And from the context, we know that Jesus is talking about the one who has ears to hear the one who applies the Word of God, the one who pays attention to what He says, the one who has good soil in their hearts. To that person, God will ultimately grant more understanding, more insight, and more of the presence of Christ Himself. But Jesus says the inverse is also true. That the one who has not, who doesn't have ears to hear, who doesn't pay attention to what's said, who does not apply the Word of God in their lives, and does not have good soil in their hearts, even what He has, Or as Luke's gospel so fittingly says, even what he thinks he has, that too will be taken away from him. So for those who are blind to the beauty of Jesus and are deaf to his voice, who choose to rely on the world's wisdom and build their house on the sands of sinful reasoning, Jesus says the rains will fall, the floods will come, the wind will blow, and their fall will be great in the wake of the reality of the kingdom of God. That all sounds probably a little bleak and maybe kind of grim and even mean of Jesus, but this is actually a very gracious warning. Jesus doesn't want this for anyone. He wants all to come into the kingdom, and He wants us to be a people ultimately who hear what He says, who apply His words to our lives, and who worship His every word, for they are our very life. Jesus next tells the parable of the growing seed. He says this, looking in verse 26. The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. If the point of the first parable was to elicit personal worship, the point of this parable is to encourage public proclamation. And notice the parallels here between the parable of the sower that Kevin taught on last week and this parable right here, the parable of the growing seed. They're really the same word picture from Jesus, 
The difference is that in the parable of the sower, the focus was on the condition of the soil. Right? We had four soils we were looking at. The focus here is both on the task of the sower and the power of the seed. Now, if you're like me, I've always read the parable of the sower as Jesus himself sowing seeds, and we kind of positioning ourselves as his listeners and his hearers in the place of the soils, asking which soil do we have in our hearts. And I think that is right, but here Jesus seems to put us in the place of the sower. We are the ones scattering the seed. He says there's a man that sows seed. It's the, the Greek word there is just a generic man. There's nothing specific about it. There's nothing to, to hint that it's messianic or it's Christ or anything else. Which means that for those with good soil in the garden of our hearts, that as the gospel is produced in us, it should be reproduced through us. This is the life cycle of the disciple of Jesus. We are to go from seedling to sower. And Jesus does a beautiful job here of holding up both of these realities in the kingdom of God, which are complementary and not contradictory. So you have the task of the sower on one hand and the power of the seed on the other. Jesus says this, The kingdom of God is if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. So the sower's task is simply to be faithful to sow. Faithful to sow, to put out See, that is what he can do. That is what he can control. But just as important as knowing what he can do, it's also equally important that the sower knows what he cannot do. Notice it says the sower sows by day, but he also sleeps by night. The farmer works, but he also rests. He is faithful to sow the seed, but he also respects his God-given limits of time and fatigue. Then Jesus emphasizes the power of the seed, when he says the seed sprouts and grows and the farmer knows not how, right? He's not ultimate. He doesn't know everything. He's not omniscient or omnipotent or omnipresent. Simply stated, he is not God. He goes on to say the earth produces the crop by itself. And that phrase by itself, two words for us there. That's one word in the Greek. It's the word automatos. It's where we get our English word automatic. Right? And Jesus is really getting at the fact that everything needed for the seed to grow is already contained within the seed. Meaning our works and our words do nothing to add to the power of the gospel. We are simply called to sow the seed. The great reformer Martin Luther captured this reality so well when he said this, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. The word, he said, did everything. Paul essentially says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 3.6 when he says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And notice Jesus and Paul aren't minimizing our roles in this process. They're not. As I said, these are not contradictory realities, but complementary. So they're not minimizing our role. Rather, they are maximizing God's role. The task of sowing is important, no doubt, but it is not ultimate. Only God can make things grow. So our mission as disciples is simply to be faithful to sow the seeds of the gospel in our everyday, ordinary, and if your life is anything like mine, often mundane. When you're at home on a rainy weekday afternoon, your kids are losing their minds and you're quickly following them, be faithful to sow the seeds of the gospel. On your lunch break at work, as you sit down to a soggy tuna fish sandwich and bill from HR, be faithful to sow the seeds of the gospel. As you deal with the difficulties of aging and ailing parents at yet another doctor's appointment or ER visit, be faithful to sow the seeds of the gospel.
And as we do this, sow the seeds of the gospel, publicly proclaim the kingdom of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, day in and day out, we can trust that God will give the growth. Though we know not how, because at the end of the day, only he can. Jesus closes our text with one more parable. It's the parable of the mustard seed. He says this, With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. So thanks to our Bible Belt culture and stores that are no longer currently relevant, like Lifeway or Family Christian Bookstore, uh, you may know just how small a mustard seed actually is, but if you don't, it's about the size of the tip of a ballpoint pen. Very, very small. In first century Jewish culture, though, a mustard seed was kind of a common reference point to describe something extremely small, insignificant, and seemingly pointless. Pun intended if you caught that. But as small as, this must, as the mustard seed begins, apparently I'm the only one that thinks that's funny, um, <laughs> it doesn't end that way. This tiny seed, as Jesus hints at, actually produces a plant that's up to 12 feet tall and so big and so sturdy that the birds that have at one point kind of consumed it for a small appetizer can now make nest in its shade. So Jesus, perhaps even surveying the ancient Middle Eastern landscape as he asked the question, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it, chooses to liken the kingdom to the minuscule mustard seed. And what Jesus is highlighting with this analogy is the drastic juxtaposition between the kingdom's small and insignificant beginnings and its great and glorious endings. I think Jesus likens the mustard seed to the kingdom on two different levels. The first way is at the corporate level. So think church at large, not just CTK, not just the church in the West, not just kind of Protestant evangelicalism. We're talking about the global church for all time, the kingdom, all of the saints, right? And just for a second, consider what the, the kingdom must have looked like to the disciples who originally heard this parable. Jesus comes on the scene, as we already studied. Mark chapter 1, he says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. And yet everything about Jesus seemed very underwhelming for a king, much less for God's kingdom. Jesus was your run-of-the-mill carpenter turned nomadic rabbi who kind of recruits the most unlikely group of disciples a rabbi has ever had and launches a movement that looks like it has no hope of outliving its leader. His very own family thinks he's crazy and calls him out of his mind, and he's made enemies with both the religious and the political powers of the day. As we've already read, both the Pharisees and the Herodians are plotting to kill him. To top it all off, Jesus' own teachings are not the kind of things anyone wants to say to gain a following or to conquer the world. In fact, most of what Jesus said, things like deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, or eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, work to thin his crowds, not draw them. And yet Jesus says this is the way of the kingdom. That what starts small and insignificant and minuscule will become great glorious. Alan Kreider, who's a church historian, says one of the primary reasons the church grew in its first 300 years amidst vast persecution and oppression was because of the Christian's commitment to patience and perseverance to see this mustard seed process through. 
He says the church created a culture of patience, and he says the early church fathers actually wrote more about the Christian virtue of patience than they did about evangelism. He goes on to say that God, in dealing with Israel across the centuries, was never in a hurry. If you've been in our MCs, I think we can all agree with that assessment from the story of God. Just on repeat, like the people of God rescued, God shows His mercy, and they're idiots afterwards. And then God is to pick them up again and show them mercy, and they disobey Him and just forsake His ways over and over. This is the Old Testament on repeat, right? And we do the same things today. We're quick to judge them, at least I am, but, but the truth is I often do the same thing day in and day out in my own discipleship. Kreider goes on to say that God's mission is both unhurried and unstoppable. And we know this to be true because we sit here today as a result of God continuing to be faithful to grow His kingdom. And ultimately, we know how the story ends. We know Revelation eleven fifteen says, The kingdom of the world shall become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. We know that one day every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So we see the mustard seed mirrored in the church at large, but I think this parable also rings true for our own individual discipleship. We live in a world that is big and fast and that's built on instant gratification. We get more dopamine hits a day through our iPhones and social media accounts than the Old Testament has commandments, which, by the way, is over 600. But the Bible and Jesus in particular are brutally honest about the fact that the kingdom of God moves at a much slower pace. In the kingdom, things change over seasons, not at 5G speeds. Kreider is helpful again here when he says that patience is the very nature of God and is therefore a distinct mark of the Christian. Paul knew this full well, which is why he listed patience among the fruits of the Spirit. If you have a toddler, you would absolutely agree that patience is not some inherent personality trait, at least if your kids are like mine. And it's why Kreider says that the fall... The fall of man, Genesis 3, if you remember, that was actually marked by human impatience. It's there that our first parents traded a posture of receiving and trusting for one of grasping and clutching. This was the original sin in the eyes of the Lord, and it has been true of all sin ever since. So while you and I may romanticize about a spiritual silver bullet, we may love to kind of glorify the instant conversion experiences of some or the chain-breaking moments of others, the truth is that most of our discipleship takes place very, very slowly and over a long period of time. Um, My wife and I, we we bought a house last March coming up on a year, which is kind of hard to believe, but we've been kind of doing a bunch of like DIY, you know, amateur remodel makeover things. Um, And we've been in our kitchen now for like three months, four months, and it's just a grind, like countertops, cabinets, all this stuff, paint everywhere. Um, Wallpaper, which if you have wallpaper, bless you, but we don't like it. (laughs) Um, And we're not going to take yours down for you. (laughs) So, but anyway, um, we kind of had to wrap up what we're doing, and she just made the comment, like, this is taking forever. And, And I don't know about you, but I just had a moment where I said something that clearly wasn't coming out of my heart or my mind. This is like not something I would say, but I just kind of paused for a second before heading out the door to get our kids. And I said, it's teaching us something about ourselves. But that's the way spiritual transformation works. It's, it's really slow. It's really, really hard. You, you take a couple steps forward and you seemingly take a couple steps backwards. And it takes a really long time to get there. 
It's why the New Testament authors put so much emphasis on the fruit of faithfulness. I love Pastor Eugene Peterson's definition of faithfulness. He said it's a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. So as we're faithful to hear the words of Jesus, faithful to put them into practice, faithful to sow the seeds of the gospel day after day, year after year, decade after decade, we can trust that God will be faithful to slowly but surely grow his kingdom, both in our hearts and in our midst. I want to close with a short poem that I think captures this reality so well. It's called Patient Trust. It says this, Above all, trust in the slow work of God. We are quite naturally impatient in everything. To reach the end without delay, we should like to skip the intermediate stages. We are impatient of being on the way to something unknown, something new. And yet, it is the law of all progress that it is made by passing through some stages of instability and that it may take a very long time. And so I think it is with you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would make us a church that worships you personally, that proclaims your gospel publicly. And we trust you to grow us patiently. In Jesus' strong name, amen.